ancient tools and burials, plants and seeds, Neanderthals. All these things we make no apology, are the study of archaeology. But we don't do dinosaurs, no we don't You're listening do to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, a critical examination of the world of pseudo-archaeology and the misrepresentation of archaeology in the world today. Each episode, we focus the lens of archaeology on a topic and discuss reality versus fantasy. We've covered everything from ancient aliens to crystal skulls, from DNA to modern fakes. Join us for our discussion this week and get ready to think critically. Digging in a trench, monuments, going to the pub when the day Hey everyone and welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast. I am your host, Sarah Head, and I am recording out of a lovely McDonald's somewhere in Ohio. I really should find out where I am. And <laughs> today I am joined by a special guest, Dr. Holly Walters. And Holly, can you tell us about yourself and what you're studying, because that will lead into our really interesting topic for today. Sure. Um, I am a cultural anthropologist. Um, I got my PhD in anthropology from Brandeis University in the Boston area. And my particular focus is on religion, pilgrimage, and the use of sacred stones in ritual practices in the Himalayas of Nepal. Um, so I've done actually a fair amount of field work. I lived in Nepal for about 16 months when I was doing my dissertation. And I also have conducted field work in northern India um, and in the sort of far eastern end of India on much of these same topics. So for our listeners who maybe are geographically challenged or just don't know what religions are in that area, when you say you're studying um, pilgrimages and religious aspects, what religion are you focusing on or religions are you focusing on? So the area that I work in is um, is actually one of um, the important borderlands between Nepal and Tibet, which is way up in the high Himalayas. And the pilgrimage area that I work on in the Kaligandaki River Valley is actually sacred to three separate religions in the region. Uh, oh, wow. Primarily Hinduism. Uh, it's, it's mainly a, a Hindu pilgrimage site, um, but it is also a Buddhist pilgrimage site and a Bon pilgrimage site, Bon being the indigenous shamanic practices of the high Himalayas. Oh, wow. Okay. So I didn't know that. Um, so. This pilgrimage, did you study the pilgrimage of all three religions or did you just focus mainly on one? No, I actually focused on all three. Um, my specialty, uh, my anthropological specialty is in Hindu practices primarily. Um, but because the pilgrimage itself is syncretic, I actually ended up delving into the Buddhist and Bon side as well. So can you, can you give us kind of a rundown of, I know this is like a lot to <laughs> ask, but can you give us a little bit of a rundown of each of the religions, um, because like I, I'm, I know that Hinduism exists. I know that Buddhism exists, at least the aspects of it that got here to America. And I have no idea what bonds is. Um, sure, it's it's a little difficult, obviously, because like any sort of large scale religion, it's um, it, it varies quite a bit. Um, so what most people in the United States know is the versions of Hinduism and Buddhism that have been imported to the U.S. So, right. What most, which aren't necessarily how they're actually practiced. Which is not necessarily how they actually how they actually work. Um, generally speaking, most Westerners are familiar with Hinduism as being a polytheistic religion. Um, it's the religion that has Shiva and Vishnu and Krishna, the the sort of famous blue gods um, in art. Uh, 
and in temple architecture. I think why are, why are they blue? Oh, the uh, the sort of very short short version <laughs> of, of why they are blue is I've always uh, wondered why they're blue. In in Hindu art, uh, or actually in South Asian art generally, the blue coloration is um, an artistic symbolic used to denote divinity. That makes sense. That's kind of what I guessed, but I didn't want to be like, yes, I know nothing about these religions, but I know that means that that's a god because they're blue. So that's that's effectively what it is. Like, just this, the, the coloration denotes their divinity. Yes. Um, I mean, okay. they, you'll, you'll run into people who will sort of attempt to make the claim that they are literally blue. Um, that is not generally the case in, in most South Asian practices. Uh, I mean, you see statues of deities and you see icons of deities, and they can, in fact, be normal skin tone. They can be white in color. They can be black in color. But generally speaking, the blue coloration in art is a, signif- is a signifier of divinity. Okay. All right. So this is that, – that's Hinduism. So how about – Yes, that's, that's Hinduism sort of, like I said, very, very generally – yeah, and I, um, and I totally interrupted you because I was just like, I must know why these things are blue. Um, yeah, so go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, the the form of Buddhism that's most common in the West is Tibetan Buddhism. So that's, uh, generally speaking, it's things like, I, I think most people are familiar with the singing bowls, with meditation, with icons of the Buddha, right. kind of that sort of thing. Um, Buddhism is quite variable in South Asia. Um, obviously not all Buddhists practice in the same way or even have the same iconography. But generally speaking, it's focused around the philosophy of the Buddha, um, uh, the Shakyamuni or Gautama Buddha. And it, it tends okay, to... Okay, so focus- hang on. What's what's that mean? Oh, that's uh, the, the Buddha's name. His name is Gaut- Siddhartha Gautama. Okay. All right. Um, Buddha is a word that essentially means an enlightened person. Gotcha. So Buddha okay. is a title. Buddha is not his name. Right. Okay. I'm with you now. Um, so in Buddhism, for example, there are multiple Buddhas that one can have a kind of meditative relationship with, and these are various okay. different kinds of enlightened persons. Okay. And then Bon, generally speaking, um, very, I would say very few Westerners have ever encountered Bon. Uh, if you want to look it up, it's spelled B-O-N. And a pra- like the Bon Festival. Yes. Okay. And then a practitioner of Bon is called Bonpo. So Bon is the religion person who practices it is Bonpo. Uh, P-O? B-O-N-P-O. Oh, all right. Bonpo. Gotcha. Um, Bon is reasonably complicated. Um, Bon is one of those kinds of religions that sort of depends on who you ask. Okay. Um, There's one school of thought that views Bon as originally the animist shamanic practices of the Himalayas. So they have a lot of sort of like mask traditions, spirit possession, um, sort of uh, animal, totemic, um, earth spirit kind of based belief systems. But over the years, Bon has become heavily Buddhicized. Um, so it has oh, taken on right. trappings of Tibetan Buddhism. Even now, though it maintains what does that look like? So it maintains its own hierarchy of belief system. It still maintains a very animistic approach to belief, but they use... they use things like monks. Uh, the monks dress like Tibetan monks. They uh, build what looks like Tibetan monasteries, um, but they are, in fact, Bon practitioners. Now, is this part of the the traditional peoples being um, settled by colonizers? 
Sort of. Um, it has a lot more to do with the proliferation of Tibetan Buddhism out of Tibet since China invaded it in the 50s. Gotcha. Okay, so this is kind of a this is kind of a phenomenon since the 50s. Then it started before then, but I would say it it really picked up speed following the closing of Tibet in the 1950s because hmm. particularly in Nepal and particularly the region that I work in, there's uh, there's still significant Tibetan refugee settlement camps. Um, there's Tibetan resistance, so their encounters with Tibetan culture in general are extensive. Okay, and okay, so. Wow, that's really cool. Um, it must be fascinating to go there and see that kind of takeover happening in a religion and be able to track it like that. I think what I found most fascinating about working in the region of Nepal where I do is that the religious hybridity that goes on in the high Himalayas is, in fact, not viewed negatively uh, by the vast majority of people who live there. So they, really? they in fact quite happily practice multiple religions at the same time. So they're not, they don't feel like their culture is being uh, attacked or assimilated or changed. They're, they're very happy to kind of embrace this and include it into their current, into their religious beliefs. There, it's generally because there is so much political conflict in the region. Generally, when people view attacks on their culture, what they're talking about is from a nationalist point of view. So they have concerns about China, they have concerns about India, they have concerns about the central Nepali government in Kathmandu. They're not particularly concerned about religion in the same way. So what's the, what is your area of focus um, when, you, when you went and studied there? What were you focusing on for the main part? I mean, obviously you were like kind of had to take all three of these into consideration, but you went there for a purpose. What was that purpose? So my actual project, uh, my ethnographic project, <laughs> um, had to do with a specific type of pilgrimage that goes on in the region. So the region okay. that I worked in is called Mustang, um, it, Mustang District or, or Mustang Region. And Mustang is the region of the Himalayas of Nepal that is directly on the border with southern Tibet. So it's a very, very contentious region. It's heavily restricted. It's almost politically inaccessible, but it has a very particular type of pilgrimage called the Shalagram pilgrimage. And that was what I was there for. And what the Shalagram is, is a specific type of sacred fossil ammonite stone, which originates solely in this specific region. Okay, so can you, I'm going to ask you to be very specific, like what... What does this pilgrimage look like? What do these shalagrams look like? Shalagrams. Why are they specific? To oh God, I said it wrong. Um, what? Why are they specific to the region? Can you can you can you tell us any of that? Sure. So okay, great. The, the shalagram stone is an ammonite fossil. So ammonites are a particular type of extinct cephalopod. So they're an extinct kind of shellfish. Um, okay. And so when you look them up, they have a very distinctive spiral shell, and they can actually grow quite large. So some, okay. some ammonites can be as small as your pinky fingernail. The largest can be the size of a Volkswagen Beetle, for example. Oh, wow. So they can get quite big. Um, but the Tibetan Plateau, this is sort of the brief fossil history of the Himalayas, the right. Tibetan Plateau has a specific black shale bed, which is now slowly eroding out of the southern part of Tibet. And as this shale bed, so shale is this very black, sort of inky black colored stone, and it is full of these ammonites, it's full of ammonite fossils. Hmm. And as the glacial melt in the highlands starts shearing off parts of the side of the subcontinent, 
these ammonite fossils end up tumbling down into the Kaligandaki River system. And the Kaligandaki is a major river system which goes north-south between Tibet and Nepal. And eventually ends up in the Ganges in India. Oh, wow. So it's a huge, well, huge river system. There you go, people. You learned some geography today. There you go. And ancient waterways. Um, so, okay, so what's the... What's the pilgrimage about, and and why why are they doing it? Uh, obviously, it's religious, but what's the purpose of the religious uh, practice? So these ammonite fossils, once they end up in the river for a couple thousand years, getting churned up in the silts, basically appear up out of the river and have a very distinct look to them. So they're this sort of shiny, inky black spiral stone. They're beautiful. Okay. Um, and in Hindu, Buddhist, and Bon practice. Shalagram stones are physical manifestations of deities. So, oh, okay. Uh, so each shalagram stone is itself a god um, or, or a particular kind of celestial spirit. And while they are used in slightly different ways in each of the three religions, each of the three religions comes to Mustangs specifically to get these stones. So they're collecting these stones? Yes. Okay. So they so in, now when they make the pilgrimage, are they just because I know sometimes like certain pilgrimages require you to do certain things as you are pilgriming. Is there a set of rituals uh, that take place from the point that you leave your home till you get to this river basin? Or is it, you know, you just walk there, grab your stuff and walk home? <laughs> and that generally depends on what religious tradition you come from. So. Okay. Very oftentimes, Hindus will perform puja, um, which is their kind of ritual worship, ritual service, before they leave home, once they reach the edge of the river, once a shalagram is found. Um, and then the end point of the pilgrimage is you take the shalagrams that you find in the river up the side of the mountain. This is in the Annapurna mountain range. So up the side of the mountain to a temple complex, um, which is about another 1,500 or so meters above the river area. Oh, Lord. Um, and that temple is called Muktanath. Um, and Muktanath is essentially the end point of the pilgrimage where the Shalagrams are venerated for the first time, they're worshipped for the first time, and then they're sent home. So they, okay, wait. So they, they go to the river, they get the, the Shalagrams? Yes, Shalagram. Shalagram. And then they take it to the temple where they worship it, or they, they perform a ritual for it. Yes. And then do they then take it back to the river basin? Nope. Then they go home with it. And oh, they take it back to their house. Okay. And then, gotcha. that, and then those shalagrams are essentially incorporated into family life as the living deities of the household. And then those okay. living deities are passed down from generation to generation and through parents and children. Okay. So this is a way of, of, of uh, getting like uh, a house god or um, a family god. Yes, very much so. Okay. So do they – okay. More ignorant questions. Do they know which god they get? Or is that revealed to them when they get to the temple? Or is is the deity ever so, not, is it just not named? No, this is, so this actually gets into my personally favorite part of Shalagram practice. All right, cool. So obviously because we're talking about fossils, each, right. each particular stone looks a little different than the next one. So each Shalagram stone is relatively unique looking. Right. Um, there are extensive interpretive practices which go on having to do with reading the stones, literally reading them as a kind of text. So oh, there wow. are there are ritual specialists who and these are 
generally Hindu and Buddhist specialists right. who are versed in their own traditions, who have learned over many years to read the specific characteristics of each stone to tell you which deity is present. Huh. So each stone leaves with a name. It is a specific deity. Nice. That's really kind of cool. But you don't, but you as like the gatherer don't know which one you've got until you get to the temple and it's revealed to you. It, that depends on the pilgrim. Um, I mean, there are definitely pilgrims I met who are exceptionally well-versed in their own interpretive traditions and can read Chalagram stones. Others are- Oh, nice. Um, and others take them to their home temples or to the temple up at Muktanath and have the stone read. Hmm. Now these are passed on through the generations. So if I have one that I'm passing down from parent to child or grandparent to child, why would I go get another one? So why would you go get a new one? Right. Yes. Um, so one of the most common ways to pass down Chalagram stones is to eldest children. Um, oftentimes ah. he's the eldest son. Not always. Um, there are very commonly eldest daughters who also inherit Chalagram stones. Gotcha. If the family has more than one Chalagram stone, um, it's also not uncommon for sort of whole collections to be split apart. Um, but essentially what happens is if you have multiple children, your eldest gets your family Chalagram stones and your younger children must now go on pilgrimage to get their own stones to begin their own family lines. That makes sense. I don't know why I didn't think of that, but I'm glad you explained that to us. Okay, so we've got these really cool stones, or these really cool fossils. I'm, I'm going to put some pictures up when I uh, put up the show notes. And again, I apologize for the background noise. It's, it is what it is. Um, but so, so we've got these cool stones, we've got these cool fossils, and they have a specific purpose in the religious practices that they are involved in. Yes. And... These are well-documented, well-known practices, at least for the people who study these religions, and obviously for the people who practice these religions. So so here's a question, I guess, because we've got about three minutes before we need to go to break. Uh, you say it's a pilgrimage, and people in America and other places around the world that aren't this area of the world, they practice these religions. Is it common for people to fly from, like, America to go to these river basins to get... They're, they're shalagrams to bring back then to the United States? It's actually quite common. Um, it's much really? more common okay. than I was expecting. Um, I mean, generally speaking, many people in the South Asian diaspora um, who are now living in the UK, in the United States, in Australia, are still carrying on these practices now for their children who have not grown up in India or Nepal. So they are returning, in fact, to the Kali Gandaki to continue Shalagram pilgrimage so that they can continue the tradition, even though they no longer live in South Asia. Wow, that's really cool. I mean, that's just, that's just an aspect of like passing on culture and that kind of stuff. That's really kind of neat. Um, now, this is the only place that these fossils occur. Or do these fossils occur in other locations, but they're just not acknowledged as being the same kind of thing religiously? So ammonites, in fact, are one of the most common fossils in the world. Um, you can okay. find ammonites on just about every continent. Um, okay. The difference is that, first of all, there are no ammonite fossils that specifically look like this, this completely homogenous, inky black spiral color. Uh, okay. So a shalagram is very distinctive in the fact that it specifically looks like a shalagram. Um, and the second part is, is that it isn't just the fossil itself that they're after, it's the fact that it is literally born out of this landscape. So they often talk okay. about, for example, 
how Shalagrams are born out of the river. Literally, the, the river gives birth to them. Um, nice. And okay. that is that is part of their description of how the god, this particular god, whoever it is in this particular Shalagram, has now become born into a body in this world. Gotcha. So, it, so this... it's one part, the fact that Shalagrams look a very specific way, and the other half is the basically the forces that shape them. So it's it's very important that the Shalagrams come from this area. Like they and can't come from anywhere that, else. That own that only Shalagram comes from this area. An ammonite fossil which comes from anywhere else in the world is just an ammonite fossil. It is not Shalagram. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that's actually really cool. Um, I'm gonna let's go to break uh, just a smidge early because when we come back, um, you had made mention on Twitter several months ago now, um, that when you lecture about this, which is really fascinating and obviously not something a lot of people are aware of, you have people in your audience approach you with interesting questions that (laughs) that you were like, how do I exactly respond to these people? But you were responding to them. The way you respond to them is actually really fascinating. But I'd like to hear how people are uh using the interpretation of these religions for their own purposes so let's go to break real quick and when we come back we'll pick up with that absolutely digging in a trench monuments going to the pub when the we hope you're enjoying spent. this episode please be sure to check out the show notes Funny at www.archyfantasies.com for further information about our hosts guests and topics in this episode this podcast is listener supported and we appreciate every donation either in the time it takes you to rate and share this episode or monetarily on patreon and ko-fi you can connect with us on the blog by email or on twitter thanks to all of our supporters and let's get back to the show dinosaurs raise your trials as one will call no we don't do dinosaurs Hey everyone, and we are back, and we are still talking with Dr. Holly Walters about, um, well, we were talking about Shalagram stones, which are really awesome fossils, and your experiences with this particular pilgrimage. I'm going to butcher the name of the pilgrimage, so help me out. So it's called Shalagram Pilgrimage. It takes place in the Kalikandaki oh, River region of Nepal. There we go. It's literally just called the Shalagram Pilgrimage. Wow. In my defense. Um, so yeah. So you you are a doctor. You teach about these things. Um, you also speak publicly about it. When you go and you speak publicly, where do you speak that you're, you're speaking to the general public? Um, let's see. The I mean, the last few invited talks that I was in, um, the first one was actually to the Hindu Cultural Society in Stoke-on-Trent in the UK. Nice. And so I, I basically ran a three-day seminar um, for the South Asian diaspora in the UK, talking about Shalagram pilgrimage and Shalagram interpretation. Um, the most recent one that I've done was to Northwest College in Wyoming, which was also an invited talk through the folklore department, um, where I was talking about not only Shalagrams, but fossil folklores in general in the Himalayas. Okay, so you've just brought up a really interesting new one. What's fossil folklore? So fossil folklore basically refers to the study of religious uses of fossils, for the most part. Um, Religious interpretations of fossils, and then the use of fossils in religious recording of time. Interesting. Okay. Um, That's probably a lot more information than we have time for. Uh, I mean, can you cram it into a five-minute speech? (laughs) 
uh, sort of. Uh, <laughs> She's like, challenge accepted. <laughs> where where most people might have a better understanding of it is, for example, Christianity has a fossil folklore. Um, think think creationism. Think the creation museum. Fair. Um, okay. Yeah. Sort of that entire body of work. That is a Christian fossil folklore. Okay. Um, and then there's also one in Islam. Um, there's several fossil folklores in South Asia among Hindus and Buddhists. Um, so, so it's kind of a way for the religion to. Exp- I mean, obviously they're finding fossils, and it's their way of explaining why the fossils are there and what the fossils that's represent. What it is now. Um, okay. The the fossil folklores of the modern day have a lot to do with divisions between religion and science. Um, and as I get into that, very much happens in Shalagram folklore as well. Okay, interesting. So, all right. Well, so when you're giving your lectures and you're talking about these fossils and such, um, afterwards or during the Q and A, you have people who have questions. And what kind of questions are they asking you that are like not exactly in line with the lecture that you gave? So I've I've sort of separated them out into two categories at this point. I like this. I like that you're like being specific about them. It, it is like I the very first time someone asked me one of these kinds of questions, I was so unprepared for it. I think I just sort of stood there in silence for a couple of minutes, trying to think of what I was going to say that didn't start with the word no. Yeah, I think we've all been there. Like the first time you encounter this stuff, you're just kind of like, I, I don't even know where to go with that question. It's like, I, I don't know how to help you. Um, <laughs> but basically, there, there's sort of two types of questions I get. And the first type is, is sort of what I call the, the magic crystal crowd. And so one of the things that becomes very important to this sort of bent is the fact that Shalagrams are interpreted. So the fact that Hindus and Buddhists read the Shalagram stones, they interpret them, and then talk about the manifest deity in the stone based on its characteristics. This sort of becomes skewed somewhere along the line into what kind of magic properties do Shalagrams have, which was in fact... So, which is in fact the very first question I got. So people come up to you and ask you what the magical properties of the shalagrams are. Or something along the lines of, what shalagram should I get if I want to cure my flu? Or what shalagram should I get if I want more money? This is just me fishing, honestly. What do you think it is when you lecture that people are taking away that lesson from? Like... I always have to like when I when I go and I speak, I always like get, you know, you get weird questions. And I always try to like play back what I've said and I'm like what did I do? What did I say to give that impression? And I mean, usually I didn't do anything and same thing here, but do you think there's something that they're hearing when you're you're lecturing or that they're reading on the internet that gives them this impression that there are that you can shop for a shalagram to like cure your boils? <laughs> Well, the sort of way that I, I sort of end up taking it is has a lot to do with the person who's asking the question. Gotcha. Um, and one of the things that I've, I've noticed, particularly I want to say over the last two or three years, is that there is a, a particular branch of, I, I guess I would put it in with New Age, um, but a particular okay. branch of kind of New Age participation in thinking um and this a lot has to do with for example westernized yoga um kind of the crystal healing crunchy earth mother <laughs> kind of bent i i'm not really sure how else to describe it that's fine uh, in in nepal for example there is a somewhat derogatory term for this kind of person um 
that my Nepali friends often refer to, and they're called yoga girls. <laughs> and you can sort of get a, an image in your mind of, of kind of the type of person I'm talking about. And it's it's just that's interesting that they're aware of this uh, this use of their religion outside of the context of it. That that's that's oh, fascinating. They like, absolutely are absolutely okay. Um, particularly in the Himalayas, which is a huge yoga retreat sort of gotcha. area. So they are, they are in fact very used to large numbers of Western tourists along this line in their region. Um, I mean, generally speaking, if you're going to the Himalayas of Nepal, you're either a mountain climber or you're a yoga practitioner. You can't just go because you wanted like, I don't know what's in Nepal to look at the artwork, the temples, uh, any of the history there. You can't just go for that. Well, I mean, that's what I went for, but <laughs> exactly. Um, but because I I also speak Hindi, uh, one of the things that I kept noticing was when locals would talk about the Western tourists, obviously not in English, is the kind of terminology they would very commonly use, and Yoga Girl was one of them. I love this uh, that you speak enough Hindi that you can like hear them smack talking. I like this. Oh, and we ended up having long conversations <laughs> about it eventually. Um, Generally speaking, because they would see me, of course, in my field gear and my hat and, you know, covered mud half the time. And they would sort of shake their heads and be like, you know, do yoga, do you? And I'd be like, no, not not particularly well. <laughs> I mean, no, here's here's all fairness. I, I like to do yoga mainly for the stretching. I don't assign any kind of religious aspect to it. I didn't even know what these things are. I'm not defending my use of yoga here. I'm just like, it's a common thing. Like, no, that's yeah. That's it's like a very common funny. thing now. Um, I mean, one of one of the one of the very common conversations I have with people is about the question: Is yoga cultural appropriation? Oh God, tell me no. <laughs> well, the the very short answer to a very long conversation oh is essentially no. <laughs> I like my yoga. Uh, no, it's not. Um, but there are aspects of yoga okay. that can be. so not not the yoga itself um which is already which has been in the west since really? the victorian era and was in fact specifically exported to the united states by south asian practitioners as huh. a tool of conversion well there you go i didn't know that so yoga itself no is not cultural appropriation however there are aspects of it depending on where you go and why you're doing it that certainly okay so i'm going to derail us a little bit cuz i know uh, we're here to talk about crystals and and fossils but what and I, I probably already know what you're going to say, but what aspects of yoga are are the appropriation? Generally speaking, when you start talking about people who are using identifiable Hindu or Buddhist deities, uh, Hindu or Buddhist ritual practices, even if sort of deeply bastardized versions of them, essentially anytime you are using aspects of a living religious practice incorrectly. Now what if these people are, I have to play devil's advocate, that's all that's happening here. What if these people are like, no, this is my religion, I feel called to it, and then you're like, no, you're doing it wrong, and they're like, yeah, but this is how I feel like I should be doing it. What's what's the response to that? Generally speaking, my response to it is to turn it around a little bit, is to imagine a group of people from India who saw a cross one time, and they've heard the name Jesus, and they read two pages out of the Bible, and then invented everything from there. But then specifically coming to the United States or to Europe and saying, this right. is Christianity. Right, so that's when it becomes super problematic. Like, it's problematic anyway, but then it becomes even more problematic. When now, you're... Yeah, now, 
Right, because you're, you're going to the place where the religion is actually practiced, and you're like, no, no, you're doing it wrong. And people are like, no, I don't think so. So my my general response is the problem lies when you are claiming to define something that does not belong to you. Not that you can't practice it. Uh, I mean, in fact, there are Western Hindu converts, there are Western Buddhist converts, and they're fine. Um, and most South Asians view them as perfectly fine. It's when they see broken and bastardized versions of their practices and followed by the claim, this is what Buddhism and Hinduism is. I can think of a lot of New Agey sources that fall well within that definition um, uh, that are sold to American audiences uh, and are, are fairly popular. I, the, 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 uh, the Osho, Osho? Yeah, absolutely. Osho? Osho cult. Osho, yeah. Uh, that, that pops to the top of my head. <laughs> yeah. So, all right, <laughs> I derailed this, so let me get us back on track. So we've discussed how this is cultural appropriation, and and if you if if our listeners listen to our show, they probably are aware that we're we're not for this, and uh, also other forms of cultural appropriation as they occur. But you were telling us about the fossils and the crystals. Now, are these fossils the Anamite fossils? Are they crystalline? No, they're not. Uh, they're opaque black shale stones. So where are people getting this crystal thing from? It's not specifically that the ammonites themselves are crystals. It's that they're getting looped into the kind of category of crystal magic, of, of precious stone magic. Gotcha. Okay. So it's like the quartzite has certain certain properties. Therefore, this fossil has certain properties because of the kind of rock that it is and that it is also a fossil. Yes. And where it comes from, uh, the fact that it, that it originates in the high Himalayas, the fact that it is a sacred object, all of that gets gets looped in. This is like the pink Himalayan salt. A little bit, yeah. Comes yeah. from the same area, actually. So it's like, you know, this chunk of pink salt is salt. It's not going to purify your air. It's not going to cleanse your system of anything. It's it's salt. It tastes good. Put it on your food. Enjoy yourself. Um, it's the same kind of and thing. It has iron, you know, iron impurities in it. Well, so like if you're low in iron, it might be good for you. I don't know. I don't know if you'll actually get enough iron from the salt for it to make any significant difference. You might OD on the salt first. That yeah, that would be my concern. Honestly, like your sodium intake would be my concern before the the iron overdose. Um, <laughs> they are very pretty though. I I'm a big fan of the uh, the salt lamps because they're pretty. Uh, oh sure. But it's the people assigning that. Oh, it's salt. Therefore, it has purification properties. Therefore, it must be purifying things. And it also, the, the sort of secondary concern that really gets to actual practitioners, um, and this is, uh, I, I actually have an entire chapter in my, my upcoming book manuscript about it, is commodification. Ah, uh, uh, yes. One of the major issues of Shalagram pilgrimage is how inaccessible Mustang actually is, both politically and just physically. Um, it's very high in the Himalayas. It takes several days to even get there no matter how you're traveling. Um, so you have to be braving high altitudes to even go on this pilgrimage, followed by the fact that it's politically restricted. So not as many pilgrims get to go on this pilgrimage as they once did, which means that the sort of flow of the Shalagram stones is slowly trickling down. Um, and that's one of the major considerations they have about it. But their concern is if Westerners get to know Shalagram stones. If this becomes part of Western awareness, Westerners will buy them. So we're worried about, uh, on top of the 
on top of the inaccessibility of the stones, we're also worried about anyone, just random people, going, harvesting these stones, these, these fossils, and then reselling them not to, to Western people and possibly even to practitioners, to actual religious practitioners. And that's what's actually already happening. Oh, well, that's um, good to know, I there guess. Are, <laughs> there are Shalagram sellers um, who are moving into the region, collecting large numbers of Shalagram stones, and then selling them primarily online. Oh, wow. Uh, I mean, if, if you really want to buy a Shalagram stone, eBay will get you one. I mean, you'll be paying a few hundred dollars for one, but you can get one. Now, does this... And the concern that they... Yeah, go ahead. No, I, I think you're getting ready to answer my question. I was going to say, my, uh, is does this hit the same kind of um, the same kind of level as like the antiquities trade, the illegal antiquities trade? Is this in the same category, or is this unprotected because it's for some reason? The problem is, is that it's unprotected. Ah, there you go. These are not considered antiquities. They're considered fossils. And because particularly the Nepali government views them as fossils and the West views fossils as souvenirs, they're very commonly bought and sold. So it's there's no protection of these objects like there is for like here in America. We have NAGPRA. It does its best to protect sacred sites and sacred stones and that kind of thing. There's nothing to protect these sacred objects, even though they're clearly not a cash cow commodity. Right now, no, they wow. have no protections. That's unfortunate. Um, you, you can go into Mustang and you can take out as many shallograms as you can find. We are not uh, endorsing this at all. <laughs> no, not not at the moment. Wow. Um, and part of where the issue lies is in both Hindu and Buddhist practices, it is considered a karmic sin to place a monetary value on a sacred stone. So they are never to be exchanged for money. And once they become commodified... Now, of course, you've moved a sacred object into a commodified object, so now they're being bought and sold, which is against the religious practice. And now you've got wealth, relatively wealthy Westerners who can pay hundreds of dollars for a shalagram stone, meaning that they're taking these shalagram stones out of circulation among the people who actually use them. Now, does the religion view these stones that have been removed from circulation, do they view these stones as being tainted or depowered somehow like if it's, it's a if it's a sin to sell them is the sold stone then somehow does the god abandon the shalagram or do they become do they just hang out in the shalagram until they're properly revered i mean nope not at all the there is in fact no way to violate the shalagram itself the shalagram remains sacred it remains a deity huh. the karmic sin is accrued by the person who bought and sold it that makes sense. Okay, but see, that's good, though, because that, well, it's good in the grand scheme of things, because it means that, like, religiously, these stones are still available if they can be obtained properly. Like, they could Absolutely. be basically I mean, repatriated. And, and there are practitioners who make a point of going into stores and shops and essentially rescuing the shallogram stones. Now, how do they do that without committing the sin of exchanging money for them? Generally speaking, in those cases, there there is some wiggle room in the theology of shalagrams. Um, you are you are not supposed to place monetary value on them. Gotcha. So they will argue that it is the seller who placed the monetary value. Right. It is the seller who accrued the sin. So if you're like rescuing it, the exchange of money isn't out of desire to obtain; it's in desire to free. Yes, it is a desire to return them back into their proper place. That's that's really fascinating. Um, 
this is a really cool topic. Thank you for coming on the show. Um, we're going to go to break. And when we come back, you said there were two categories of people. One are your your crystal people. Uh, I would like you to share with us your second uh, grouping of people when we come back. Absolutely. Funny meeting blokes you will see are a staple of our chaos. We hope you're enjoying this episode. This podcast is listener-supported, and we'd like to thank our longtime supporters on Patreon. Beth Williams, Bill Ochter, Bobby Cox, Brent Murphy, Carl the Italian Stallion Sagan, Crystal Sanchez, Christina Sanford, Craig Cruz, Darren Davis, Elizabeth Teresa, Grace Yon, Heather Anderson, James Russell Laufen, Kimberly Bray, Lizzie in the Lab, Michelle Murphy, Nicholas Maloff, Nuclear Cat, Pennyhead, Randall Gaz, Roger Price, Sarah Fritz, Scott, Sid February, Takashi Tuyuka, Timothy Schreiner, and William Clayton. Thanks to all of our Patreon supporters, and if you'd like to join them, just look for us on Patreon. We'd also like to thank our one-time donor on coffee, Danny Baker. Thanks to all of our supporters. Now let's get back to the show. Hey everyone, and we are back, and we are still talking with Dr. Holly Walters about, we were talking about Charlotte Gromstones, um, and weird crystal people, and how rocks don't actually have superpowers, um, like that, and if you find a Charlotte Gromstone, what should I do with it? We were just talking about this at break, I go into a rock store, I find what I think is a Charlotte Gromstone, or I know is a Charlotte Gromstone, what do I do? So generally, I obviously this is my my research topic. I repatriate them as best as I can um, if I encounter them outside of South Asia. What this means is, for the most part, I have contacts with a number of different Hindu temples, uh, with Shalagram practitioners themselves, or with Hindu community centers, and I I sort of call them up, let them know that I have one, and then I return it to to its proper place. So it's really just that easy to just like call them up or maybe show up on community day because a lot of them have open houses basically and just be like hey i found this thing i think it's yours here you go i mean usually they're a little surprised that you know what a shalagram stone is uh but aside from that uh everyone that i have encountered in this way has been very happy to have them back that's awesome so you know there's a way to help out a community if you're able to do so so you were telling us uh, in the in the second segment there, that there are two classifications um, that you have. What's the second one? <clears throat> so the second group that I get is, um, generally speaking, people who are invested in the pseudoscience of the Vedas. Um, so the Vedas are the original Sanskrit text that Hindu that modern day Hinduism is based off of. Right. And the Vedas are also, unfortunately, exceptionally prominent in Hindu pseudoscience. And not just Hindu pseudoscience, people may be familiar with these because of the liberal use that the ancient aliens people use do with yep, this. Yep, that's exactly where it comes from. All right, so people so just have that the, there. Uh, the, one of the main things that comes out in pseudoscience, particularly ancient alien pseudoscience, is the term Vimana. Um, and Vimana is a Sanskrit word which roughly translates to that which measures or that which traverses. But the Vimana in the Vedas are what kind of where the term the chariots of the gods comes from. Um, the Vimana are vehicles. They are divine vehicles. So they're flying chariots. Um, one of the Vimana is a flying palace. Um, these are 
conveyances that appear in the Hindu epics. I like that you just start. So the so the rocket ships is what you're telling me. They're the rocket ships and they're they're airplane fighters. And isn't there something <laughs> about a a nuclear bomb or something? Yeah, that one comes up from time to time. So part of the issue is that in modern Hindi, Vimana is now translated to mean airplane. So there are airlines with that name. Gotcha. So this is another one of those things where we're using modern terminology to evaluate past usages of a word or a phrase, which are not necessarily the same. And that's exactly what's happening. Okay. So they uh, so because Vimana is now used also to mean airplane or airline, therefore the Vimana referenced in the early Vedas must also refer to flying machines. Which of course it doesn't because there are archaic forms of words that get used. Yes. Um, and obviously the the terms being used in in the Vedas are really specifically referring to an idea of a flying chariot, a divine chariot, or a divine palace um, that the gods live in. So it's even as a concept, it's it's not particularly difficult to to delve into. It's interesting that you mention um, the flying palace concept because I because I am a nerd. Uh, I used to read comics when I was a child, and one of my absolute all time favorites uh, was called Elf Quest. And in ElfQuest, there... Have you read this one? I don't think I've read this one, but I'm familiar with ElfQuest. Oh, yeah. So ElfQuest. So, like, their ancestors, they're, of course, space aliens. Uh, So these elvish space aliens, when they came to the planet that they're on, which is called Two Moons, so it's not Earth, um, they came in a flying palace. And it's throughout the comic, it is referred to as either the palace or the palace of the high ones. And it's... I mean, it's it's a spaceship, but it looks like a fancy palace. So I think it's interesting that you mentioned the the flying palace in which the gods live, and then like I have this comic book tie-in from like the seventies, but I'm not that old. It was an old comic <laughs> when I read it. Um, but yeah, so that's an yeah, interesting tie-in story. <laughs> no, seriously, I'm not fine. I'm ancient. There, are you happy? Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, we we've talked several times on the show about the connection between pop culture and pseudoscience and do you see a lot of pop culture influencing this particular type of pseudoscience that you encounter at your lectures? It sort of depends. Where I'm starting to see it more and more is actually a little bit more insidious. Uh, really? And that's because Hindu pseudoscience in particular is becoming relatively popular among Hindu right nationalists in South Asia. Interesting. Uh, particularly in India. How so? And so... Hindu pseudoscience um, is very popular among a group called the Hindutva, and the Hindutva is basically Hindu fundamentalists, right-wing Hindus. Um, And one of the goals of the Hindutva is essentially to create an India for Hindus only. Um, They tend to be relatively xenophobic, they tend to be very anti-Islam, and one of the ways that they have been leveraging that is by basically by leveraging Hindu pseudoscience, by claiming that the Vedas are the source of all modern scientific knowledge. I've um, seen this, yes. Okay, keep going. And that, and that, in fact, any form of scientific discovery or any form of scientific inquiry is, in fact, somehow related to Vedic knowledge. Uh, isn't there the book um, Forbidden Archaeology? Yep, that's one of them. Another popular one that I would actually highly recommend is by an Indian scientist by the name of Mirananda, who wrote a book called Saffron Science. Saffron Science. 
Uh, specifically where she talks about the use of Hindu pseudoscience as a method of essentially right-wing politics in South Asia. So this is a explaining the pseudo the saffron science is explaining the pseudo archaeology of the, the hindu science where i believe forbidden archaeology is very much uh pro what you were talking about so that's where a lot of people can get a little bit of exposure to it's really hard to get hold of that book by the way um but we'll put a link uh, up to forbidden archaeology yeah it's hard to get a hold of the copies these days um I know they have them I mean, on Amazons, but they're kind of expensive. The good is news good. is you can get um, you can get Saffron Science on Amazon, as far as I know. Yeah, and we'll totally link to that. Uh, by all means, go buy the book, read it. Uh, anything that gets a recommendation is worth reading. So, okay, so keep going with this. Like, um, so this, this I, I, we've seen it. I, I have encountered it a few times through the Forbidden Archaeology because it's linked to pseudo archaeology and pseudo uh, sciences that I study. And it there's like all these really interesting claims that it is fascinating to me because they will on the one hand debunk other forms of pseudoscience in favor of this this hindu version of archaeology absolutely i mean and it's i mean it's not surprising i think to anyone who works in archaeology or in fact anyone who has experience with pseudoscience that pseudoscience is very often used to prop up certain kinds of nationalist agendas yes usually uh, i mean ancient aliens definitely has a very white supremacist kind of bent to it, a very white nationalist bent to it. Mm -hmm. And the use of Vedic pseudoscience, particularly in the sort of scientification of Hindu philosophy, is absolutely at this point being used in right-wing politics in South Asia. Interesting. So this is making it, this is in their mainstream. Oh, yes, absolutely. It's, it's part of where they make claims to Hindu superiority. Um, it's often used to exclude non-Hindus from certain areas, particularly political areas. Um, and it's also a way of linking Hindutva politics with the West. Um, their use of the scientification of Hindu philosophy is a direct link to Western concepts of science. So why is that important to them? Because it gives them a kind of veneer of almost, this is going to sound almost sort of terrible, it's a veneer of kind of Western superiority. So, okay, so that's interesting. The West is superior scientifically. Therefore, if we link Hindu philosophy with Western science, we locate that superiority within our own land. That's really fascinating um, to see, to be able to like pinpoint why it's being used that way. Um, now, keep in mind for our listeners, we're, we're talking about a, a particular right-wing fringe group, not people who practice Hinduism. Um, no. Yeah, this this is absolutely not a blanket statement about Hindus. This is about a very particular political organization in South Asia. Right. Um, so, what do you do when someone comes up and what kind of questions are you getting, like, if you have an example, and what do you do when you get that, that answer, besides go, no, you're wrong? <laughs> I usually try to be about as diplomatic about it as I can be, which is to point out that you don't want to obscure or erase the really meaningful practices that go on with these texts, with these shalagram stones, with these ritual objects. And unfortunately, a lot of the pseudoscientific bent can, in fact, erase the really fascinating things that are going on. Uh, so I tend to try and reorient it back towards 
let's talk about what is happening with Shalgram Stones. Let's talk about what they do mean today, not in terms of the scientification of the Vedas. So when you're getting these questions, um, who is the typical asker? Like, what is what is the profile of the typical person who comes up and asks you these questions? They're usually young Western students, for the most part. Um, oftentimes, they're undergraduates, since I tend to, to lecture in undergraduate classes, or if I do university talks, it, it tends to be to the undergraduate student body. Um, generally speaking, when I lecture to non-students, they don't have quite so much of a background in this particular kind of pseudoscience. Um, most, I would say most of the general public tends to view them obviously just as fossils. It's, uh, their, their response is, well, they do know they're fossils, right? Well, I mean, and there is another problem is that, that ethnocentrism that's coming out there with the whole concept of, oh, look at these silly people and their fossils. Um, that's honestly not the or point. sort of, you know, quote unquote, what are they really? <laughs> uh, you know, they believe that they're divine, but they are really a fossil. Right. Uh, and what I tend to point out in those respects is if you ask a Shalgram practitioner, do you know that this is an ammonite fossil? Their response is going to be, yes, I know that. It's just that the fact that it is an ammonite fossil is not important to its ritual use. Right. And it's not it's not for the outsider to put a definition on a religious practice. Like, you are not a practitioner. It is not in your purview to enlighten people into your way of thinking. And also not to assume that they don't understand what your point of view is. Exactly. So oftentimes people will, will treat Shalgram practitioners as ignorant, and they absolutely are not. Right. Uh, I mean, we are talking about people who've... They've been to school. They know what a fossil is. They, right. you know, they have the fossil history of their continent. Like they fully understand exactly what you're talking about. It's just that their perspective and their use of these particular objects are not the same. I think I think you're kind of hitting on a really important point here um, that ties back into the appropriation of the Vedic, the the Vedas as evidence of blah. Um, aliens or, or Vedic science. And that is um, because we're talking about a group of people that are probably not very well known to Western people is like, I fully admit, I don't know that much about it. Hang on real quick. Uh, so because there is a, a, a gap in knowledge there, it's very easy to fill that gap in with, oh, well, I don't know what these people are, therefore they must be ignorant because they're worshipping fossils. You know, it, it's very easy to do that. Um, and I think that's where this whole uh, ancient aliens thing gets so much grasp is because so little is known, it's very easy to just fill it in with that and just be like, nobody can call your bluff on it because nobody else knows either. I think that's why one of the fav one of my most favorite terms, and I can't now for the life of me remember where I first heard it, but the term is temporal chauvinism. Hmm. And temporal chauvinism is sort of two different things. It's one, believing that the particular time in which you live is unusually exceptional, followed by the fact that you interpret the past only through the lens of the time you live in. 
I feel like that's a term that Jeb would very much like if he didn't already know what it meant. Um, especially since earlier you brought up the Victorians, and that's like we can't have an episode where we don't blame the Victorians for something because usually it's their fault. Uh, <laughs> but I didn't even get through the first year of my blog without blaming the Victorians. <laughs> I'm telling you, that's that's that is the running theme of this show, and I'm perfectly content with it because I have a love hate relationship with the Victorian era and. So it's it's really fascinating to me to be able to track this stuff back to an origin point. But like what you were saying with the yoga, I didn't know it had been here since Victorian era. So that's kind of fascinating. Yeah, and it was it was principally imported um, during the time of Swami Vivekananda in the mid to late 1800s. And he was trying to convert people with it. Like he was basically using it as a missionary thing. Absolutely. That's awesome. Um, oftentimes... A lot of Indian yoga practitioners in the mid to late 1800s who were moving into the West viewed yogic practice as a way to spread Hinduism as a global religion and therefore to win Western converts. That's exactly what it was for. That's really fascinating because I know that there is a and I only know this because I come across the weirdest stuff on the Internet, but there's a um, Christian group that has decided that, of course, yoga is of the devil. So you can't do yoga, but you can do this other version that kind of looks a lot like yoga, but you're saying like Christian prayers or biblical verses while you're doing it, as opposed to, I, I know that some yoga practitioners have mantras that they chant um, or words uh, yeah, that they I think repeat. Yeah, referring to Christ modes, I think is what it's called. Thank you. I think you're right. Yeah. I'm not going to link to that, but it, it exists. Uh, it's it's something. Um, And so... The thing to sort of keep in mind is that yoga as it currently is in the West is something that is now, 150 years later, very different than what yoga is in India and Nepal. Yeah. Like I've, I've seen when I was very much learning yoga because um, I took a college course in it because I'm a college student and that's what you do when you need a one credit course. <laughs> um, you know, we were handed all these little handouts and flyers because our, the person teaching it was, of course, very much into the religious aspect of it um as they saw it but yeah the which is again not what yoga is in india and nepal no no and, um, that's, and that's what i picked up very quickly with the things that they were handing me and then of course you do your own research and you're finding these things and you're like this doesn't look like or sound like what we're doing in class at all it's <laughs> american yoga and that's fine right i, mean, I, I don't want to disparage anyone like if you do yoga or you enjoy yoga that is perfectly fine just don't imagine that what you are doing now is yoga in India, because it is not. Just accept that it's American yoga, and you're an American yoga person. And you're an American yogi. There you go. That's just completely different than an actual yogi from the Hindu or Buddhist religions. Um, this has been, I mean, as many jokes as I can crack about this, which I'm not <laughs> going to, and really I, I can only do it because I can, I've just seen so many parallels between the um the issues that you're having and and the problems that you bring up with you know appropriation of these different religions and these stones and you know the, the questions that you get the somebody really likes frappes here that's all i've got to say um they really parallel with a lot of the stuff that ken and jeb and i talk about pretty routinely but they're completely different parts of the earth because ken and jeb and i focus a lot on the america's um, North America for the most part, and a little bit of South America, because Jeb actually knows quite a bit about these things. And but you're coming from like like the middle of the other continent, <laughs> but yet the problems uh, pseudo archaeologically are 
are pretty much the same. Well, definitely in terms of pseudoscience as an ideology. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you can talk about what do you do with pseudoscience? Why do you get into pseudoscience? And what does it do for you? And in a lot of cases, that's the same in a lot of different places. Yeah. I mean, it, it very much comes back to appropriation, um, reinterpretation to drive a very much a political agenda here. Um, and then, I mean, even when you're looking at uh, the Vedas, the Vedas being used by ancient alien peoples, which is what I'm most familiar with. Um, it's the only reason I keep bringing it up. But again, that's very much driving an idea, uh, an ideology, um, which a lot of people aren't aware of when they watch ancient aliens. What you're watching is is somebody trying to sell you on their their pretty much white supremacist ideology. Um, but you're you're saying yeah, that there's a right wing Hindus that do this. Yes, and and there is also a South Asian ideology that is doing the exact same thing. Oh my! Um, which is to exclude non-Hindus from the political sphere. And they're using the same process to do it, more or less. See, that's just fascinating. Like this comes back to comes back to politics. Um, and again, since Jeb's not here to point this out, you know, this is what's happening here too. Um, using the same methodology. Maybe not necessarily the exact same things, but the same methodology. And they tend to, the thing I, I also like to point out to people, is we live in a very globalized world. These ideologies feed on one another. They do. Uh, if you get sort of white Westerners who are buying into this Vedic mythology, um, and I mean literal Vedic pseudoscience mythology, they oftentimes are getting it fed to them from political organizations in South Asia who are also promoting these ideologies in much the same way, but it also allows then people in the West to say, well, this is what Indians are saying. This is what Nepalis are exactly. saying. Exactly. Yeah. And the answer is no, they're not. Yeah. This and is what a very particular part of politics in South Asia is saying. Yeah. And that that's when it starts to get tricky because then you it's that, uh, well, I know this one person who fits in this group and they say. Yes. Like, well, I have this Indian friend who said this, and therefore that's what all Indians think. Right, exactly, because this one person represents an entire population of people, all right. of them. And, and so it is absolutely untrue to ever say, well, this is what all any particular group thinks. Right, right. Um, but because they have a political platform, they're also what you're going to see online. Um, they're who you're going to see in forums. They're going to be the people who are driving this. And they're going to sound like a much bigger voice than they might necessarily be. That's that's also a really good point to make. That like the thing, something I'm learning probably should have learned this a lot earlier in my life. But the internet amplifies the voices that are the, the quiet voices, uh, not necessarily the voices you need, you should be listening to or even should be believing, but it does make them seem like they're a larger group than they are. Yes, it does. Um, it it makes it seem like you're talking to a massive political movement when if you were to actually go to India or Nepal would be sort of shocked to find out the vast majority of people you talk to don't think that way. <laughs> it's really just George in his garage with his blog, which I really shouldn't give too much crap to considering I have a blog and I think it's important. Um, <laughs> Holly, thank you very much for coming on the show. This has been really fascinating. Um, I can't say we won't have you back on the show because I feel like there's stuff we didn't even cover and I feel like we could get a whole other show out of this. Um, but what are your final thoughts on the matter? What's, what's, what do you want people to take away from this episode? I think the biggest thing I really do want people to take away 
is don't be afraid to question these things that you're reading. Um, I mean, obviously, that's always what we say in terms of pseudoscience, but don't take the online version of something as gospel. Um, it really is a much smaller world than you might think. This is very true in terms of Shalagram practice. If you go and look up Shalagram practice online, the version of Shalagrams you get are not what it's like in the Himalayas. Now, you also mentioned that you're working on a book manuscript. I am, yeah. When are we should be, be when should we be expecting it? Um, well, hopefully I actually have a book proposal out now to a university press and the manuscript itself is actually done for the most part. Excellent. Sans, sans a few revisions. Um, so my hope is actually within the next year. Well, great. So when you, when you finally launch the book, would you be willing to come back on the show and tell us all about it? Absolutely. Excellent. Well, Holly, thank you very much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And, uh, see you in the, see you on the internet. Yeah, we'll see you around. Extrapolating from a single stone the extent of a whole complex and then publishing it. If you'd like to support the podcast, consider donating to us on Patreon or Kofi. Either option helps us out. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on the blog, www.archiefantasies.com, and like and share us wherever you can. You can follow us on Twitter at Archiefantasies, or you can reach us by email at Archiefantasies at gmail.com. That's A R C H Y fantasies at gmail.com theme music was provided by archaeosuit productions this episode was produced and edited by sarah head no we don't do dinosaurs we don't do dinosaurs see are you happy do you get it now do you get it honestly